You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Thank you all for being here. This is a really special night, and this is a really lovely group of people, so this is a great, great space for us to begin together. Terry Tempest Williams, I'm going to give you a little rundown. She is an artist, an activist, a naturalist, and a writer, and so many things. One of our most impassioned defenders of public lands. She is the award-winning author of The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks, refuge, and a natural history of family and place. Finding Beauty in a Broken World and When Women Were Birds, among other books. Her work is widely taught and anthologized around the world. As a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, she is currently the writer-in-residence at the Harvard Divinity School. And here tonight, we're celebrating the release of her newest book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing. Terry means a lot to me and means a lot to a lot of people. And I just want to share a quick passage that is something that I turn to very much all the time and this is from the Hour of Land and this is taking us to Canyonlands National Park in Utah and it reads we are in some strange wind says the wind and it has always been that way in southern Utah downwind from nuclear testing downwind from the state lawmakers who want to sell public lands to the highest bidder so they can develop them downwind of shale oil and gas extraction that threatens to erode the very beauty that defines America's red rock wilderness. This is the place I call home. What do I do? I write letters. Lots of them. I write letters to editors, newspapers, magazines, to people who are dead and people who are living. I write my letters to family and friends. I write letters to my students with questions. I have even written letters to myself so I will remember what I never want to forget, that this landscape is what keeps me sane in a world that would have me believe that I am mad. I write letters and rip them up, burn them, bury them. There is no end to the misses I write that are never read because they are never sent. My most powerful letters are written at night in the hours when I cannot sleep. They are my spoken letters to the dark, unretrievable. But when I wake up in the desert, I keep writing. It is my incurable disease. In the desert, it is amplified because like time, words become lost in the canyons. And those canyons are places that come to my heart, that come to our hearts, and how you connect to us is so special. And thank you for not sweeping us under the carpet like so many people would like to do and you pull back the cobwebs and you make us all feel heard and seen and visible. So it is my pleasure to introduce Terry Tempest Williams. Welcome to City Lights. Peter, 
27 years. And dear Ryan, four years. And this span um, that holds us all together. One of the things I love about City Lights is there's never a simple conversation. Um, and it certainly isn't on the surface. And upstairs we were talking. Um, and Peter just reminds me that in very, very powerful ways, what we are facing now, perhaps tonight, in terms of impeaching our 45th president, how serious that is in terms of making sure that the open space of democracy stays open. Um, coming from Utah, I don't assume we all share the same politics, but being in this bookstore, I might be able to. <laughs> so that is a, a beautiful, liberating place to be. But Peter is saying you know, that these are not just political issues that we are grappling with right now, and not even ecological issues, but spiritual ones. And I love, Peter, how you said it's not a word you use lightly. And I think it's a word that we have to use more and more, because I think we are not only in a constitutional crisis, an ecological crisis, a climate crisis, but a spiritual crisis. And if we don't embrace this, then I think um, we won't be able to embrace the work that is needed for all of the other um, issues that we're facing. I love how Peter said we keep the lines open of witnessing. And I think about all of these books and the lines, the openness between the lines. And I think that's also what is required of us right now. And I find myself rereading um, more and more and learning what that means to read in a deeper way. And one of the great gifts of my life in the last few years has been Ryan. Um, Ryan and I come from the same place in Utah, um, the same culture. Um, I think in many ways we're refugees. Uh, and I have always, when I'm in your presence, I feel at home in the most beautiful, deep, deep way. And I recognize you, Ryan, as an empath, as a vibrant being. I tease him and call him the mayor of North Beach because whenever I'm in trouble, he appears. And I hope you don't mind if I share this one story. I had been at Esalen. Um, this was last year. And, you know, I really haven't done drugs in my life, I have to tell you. You know, the desert is enough for me. But we were given some edibles. <laughs> and no one told me the impact of them. And so I took one with some friends and we went to this record store and I was dancing and I was so happy and I thought, I can't believe what I've missed in my life. But I realized that it didn't kick in. That was just me. <laughs> and it didn't kick in until I walked into City Lights and said hi to Ryan and I just went, oh my god, I think I'm stoned. And he goes, don't worry, I've got you. <laughs> Literally, we spent the night together, and I cannot tell you what we saw and did, and that is a very dear friend from one of you. You are changing the world on a cellular level, one person at a time, and I love you. And this is the next generation, and I think this kind of intergenerational um, caretaking is, is really a beautiful thing. And your mother is here. Hi, I love your son. <laughs> Congratulations. So, and it's Lee's 80th birthday, um, and we honor you and the work that you've done in terms of peace work and, and who you are in the world with your family and Gia, and we honor you. And my dear friend, Ellen Friedman, um, brave, brave today, yesterday, an announcement that the Compton Foundation is sending out because this is where we are, um, your transformer, and and also is in the acknowledgments of erosion. Um, that book would not have happened without Alan's friendship and picking me up when I had um, eroded from being fired, still raw, from the University of Utah. My only ambition it was to teach there. And um, after Brooke, beloved Brooke, we bought oil and gas leases as a protest. 
um, from what was happening on our public lands, um, saying that um, we were not going to develop those leases until science could show us that they were worth more above ground than below the fossil fuel, um, and that the only energy we were interested in developing at this moment was an energy to fuel the spirit, to keep it in the ground. Um, two weeks later, I was thanked for my service and um, informed that I was no longer working there. And we fought it, um, and then I realized um, I could not be there in a straitjacket. And it was Ellen um, who said, we've got you. And you did. And I'm now teaching unexpectedly um, at the Harvard Divinity School. And I may get fired again. <laughs> but it's okay. You know, I realize this is where we are. And thank you. And one of my beautiful students, one of our beautiful students, Chang Yu, it's so beautiful to see you. And you just happen to be here from Taiwan. And what I can tell you about Chang Yu is he taught me how to walk consciously. And on a river trip, um, following uh, Stegner's beautiful work, um, Beyond the 100th Meridian, we followed John Russell Powell's trip down Colorado, the Colorado River. And when we were going up to the dollhouse, it was very, very steep. And it was Jane Yu who said, Terry, watch me how I walk. And it was a meditation walk. And we were at the top of this very, very steep cliff before I even knew that we were rhythmically breathing together. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for the work you're doing in the country on behalf of landscape. Jennifer, I could just go on and on, who is a family member um, who understands death, which means she understands life. And that is at the heart of erosion. And we honor you and love you um, for your wise commitment to breathing breathing us into the next world. I could go on and on, but the reason I'm taking time to do this is because we are nothing without community. We are nothing without community. And I think that the isolation that we see among our loved ones is what is causing so much pain. And in a world where we are supposedly so connected, I think in many ways we are disconnected. And so I think to gather in this space, to breathe together, to feel together, um, to share together, is to me the antidote to despair. And what I can tell you is in those moments when I wonder if I can get up in the morning, I'm sure we've all been there, um, especially frequently, you know, lately. Um, I'm aware of the limits of my own imagination. Imaginations shared create collaboration, and in collaboration, community is born. And I really believe in community, anything is possible. This is my last reading on this book tour. And I was thinking today how, for me anyway, as a writer, I don't really know what the book is until it's on. Until I have shared it with others and, and really been, I know this book from the inside out, but I don't know it from the outside in. And it's only through the readers that I really find out what that means. And so it's, it is a collaboration. This is not my book, it's ours. And it's an offering. And what you give back to me, I can't tell you um, what that fuels, the energy. And I thought that in many ways this book, in the beginning, when I was writing it, was about anger. And I was willing to be angry and to really be public with that because I was tired of behaving all the time. And growing up Mormon, you know, you don't rock the boat and you are gracious. My grandmother always said it doesn't cost a dime to be gracious. And with this book, I thought I'm. I don't care anymore. I just want to speak the truth, and the truth hurts. And what I'm seeing in my home ground, our home ground, in America's Red Rock Desert, 
um, where Donald Trump, you know, after uh, 1.3 million acres was established as a national monument, Brazos National Monument, with Barack Obama, who understood what the tribal members were saying, the Hopi, the Navajo, Dine, Zuni, Ute, Mountain Ute, Ure Ute, that this, these were sacred lands, that this was a gathering place. And as Joni Yellowman said, not just for our people, but all people, that this is where their prayers are said, where their ceremonies are held, where their medicines are found, where on any given day you can hear the voices of the ancient ones singing on the wind. Yes, less than a year later, after that, handshake across history, a new trust being forged between Native people, Indigenous people, and the federal government, where traditional knowledge is woven with the knowledge of the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, the National Park Service, severed, gutted, disrespected by 85% in the name of business. And now, those lands are open for business. With a name like Tempest, I know rage. It's a fire in my belly that won't be undone. And that was really the root of this book. But that's not what the book is There is an elder named Willie Gray Eyes. He's a community member of such respect. He's in his 70s. He was the chair of Utah Dine Bekeya. And after this happened, I went to visit him and I said, Willie, what do you do with your anger? And this is a man who fought the United States government, Utah state government, tribal government, and said, there is racial gerrymandering in our county. And he fought it, and he won. And in that moment, he realized if that open space of democracy is now open, he had an obligation to stand in it. And he ran for county commissioner. He won. And then in that moment, it became, for the first time in history, in the state of Utah, a native majority. What I call the frontier Mormons in San Juan County would not accept that. And they did not concede. Kelly did not concede who ran against him and said this is an illegitimate election by an illegitimate candidate. And what they said was, Willie Gray Eyes, who for generations his family has have lived at the base of Navajo Mountain, is not a Utah resident. They went to court. The courtroom was packed. It was a newly appointed Trump judge. And Willie, instead of showing his driver's license, instead of showing his voting records for 35 years, instead of showing all the community work he'd done for the Utah Navajos, 800,000 miles on his comet. That was not his defense. Or character, you know defense, saying this is a man who has given his life to Utah. His defense was, I am a citizen and resident of Utah because this is where my umbilical cord was buried. And when they went out to see the quadrants, what the prosecution said was, there's nothing out there. This man is a fraud. And his defense again was, I am a resident of Utah because this is where my political friend has been. And then people talked about what Willie had done in terms of health care, food for the elderly, education, on and on and on. And finally, when the prosecuting attorney said to his daughter, who was the last witness, but where does your father sleep at? She said, you want to know where my father sleeps at night? On the mother Willie Gray Eyes won his case. And this most conservative of judges said, if only 
we could all understand what it means to dwell in place. So when I asked Willie Gray Eyes, what do you do with your anger? If anyone could be angry, it would be Willie. He said, Terry, it can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. And I feel today, anticipating you at the end of this book tour, erosion is about healing. Not in a therapeutic way, but in terms of what we need. And the, the first part of my book tour in October, what I read was a very angry political piece called Boom. What I want to read with you tonight is a healing place, a healing piece about my brother Dan. And in talking to Ryan about what we wanted to create tonight, we both came to that same conclusion. And when I read the paper this morning, and perhaps you did too, of the San Francisco Chronicle, High Risk as Bridge Suicide Net Delay, I was stunned that 26 lives, 26 individuals, 26 people who were loved, um, death by suicide from the bridge. And that the delay of three years means, and now two more years, means 60 more people. 156 interventions. My brother hung himself on July 27th um, last year. And I want to share with you um, a bit of the let me see what the time is. Um, a bit of the conversations through texts that Dan and I had, and then the last part of this essay called A Beautiful Rugged Place about my youngest brother Hank. Um, what he insisted on, I was not prepared for, but followed him. And that's really how I want to end this book tour. asking the question that another holy man who this in view of Bears Ears in Monument Valley, Jonah Yellowman when I went to visit him and I said, Jonah, tell me what you're seeing what are you hearing and he said we are in ceremony and what we are hearing, what our elders are telling us, what we are seeing in ceremony is this. One question, how do we go deeper? And I think that's the question that I would ask us to hold tonight. How do we go deeper with the gifts that are ours, each in our own way, each in our own time, in the places we call home? It can no longer be about anger, it has to be about healing. And that burning question, how do we find the strength to not look away from all that is breaking our hearts? We are eroding and evolving at once. And I should tell you, um, by way of background, my brother Dan Dixon Tempest, um, one of the most beautiful men, individuals I've ever known. Um, sensitive, too sensitive for the world, perhaps. Um, this was one of his favorite bookstores. So I really dedicate this to him. Um, a voracious reader who read between the lines. He was a Wittgenstein scholar, deeply interested in language. He was also a working man. Um, his tool of choice was a shovel. And when you hear him say, I think I finally mastered dirt, I think he made peace with what his work was. And it, toward the end, um, as he battled with depression for years, decades, I always felt, and I've never said this publicly, but I will hear because this is City Lights, 
Um, I really feel that the isolation he felt um, to where he could no longer hold his pain was because he was gay. And in a culture that, that could not be acknowledged of his generation. Where he found his flight was by banding birds of prey, golden eagles, peregrine falcons, and his favorite bird, which was a red-tailed hawk, because he said it was the one bird that yielded. Not long before his death, Dan texted me. I'm at my limit, sis. Haven't slept in three weeks. No sleep, no sleep. I am eroding. A few days passed, texts. To understand something is to be liberated from it. And I can't get past being liberated. Where did I go wrong, sister? My reply was this. You haven't gone wrong, Dan. You are a brilliant man. You just need to keep going and find your creative groove that will pull you to your destiny. This I believe. He then sent me an image of a bound mummy on a bound horse. Later, Dan sent me the talk by Malcolm Gladwell and David and Goliath. He texted this quote. As the playwright George Bernard Shaw once put it, quote, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man, unquote. And then this, quote, you can't concentrate on doing anything, sis, if you're thinking, what's going to happen if it doesn't go right? Quote, I'm winding down on this whole existence thing. I want to be free. Stardust. I've been buried too long. I responded, these are hard and lonely times. I don't have much hope. And then there are these moments of beauty, Dan. A million people marching for justice. Stars in the night sky in the desert. You're caring voice. I love you. Dan, just make sure you get me in the air, Tara. Again, I'm saying it. I've been buried too long. Dan, I want you to know what you know. Please write. I want to know what you know. Please write. Write to me. Letters. This is what I listened to this morning in my own dark side of the moon. On being. The soul and depression. Quote, Dan, I have today. No point anymore. Just today. Pretty much need to see things in these last days. I love you. Just put me in the air. It's all I ask. I hope you will bury me first, dear heart, in the desert. Won't be around then, sis. I need you to be, Dan. We all do. You, me, and Hank. Tear, I'm not fucking around. Mental illness is taking me out. I believe you can get help, Dan. I hear you. And here it is, this whole conversation between a brother and sister. And then he says... My legacy was being addicted. I could never beat it. But I was a sensitive, intelligent soul. You know that, right, Tara? And then he says, a few weeks pass, he sends me the song, Simple Man. So much right and wrong in my life, Tara. Bipolar. Listen to this music. I'm okay. Today is a good day. And then, and Fast forwarding, he says, Tear one thing for me. Please write that addicts are good people. And then he said something that haunts me still. Why can't you see it, Tara? We're fucked. You keep hoping things will change. I'm fucked. You're fucked. The planet is fucked. It's time to exit. Face it, sis. It's time to let me go. Time to let it all go. There was a long pause. Neither of us spoke. Let me go. I said I would never let him go, nor would I ever give up on the earth. After our call, he texted me, let go, repeat, let go. I bought the rope, tear. I'm going out gently. No guns, I would not do that to you, to, my, to John, our father, to Hank. I will not disappear in the desert. You will not have to worry. I texted him again, please, I will never give up on you or your joy again. You are alive, a testament to your strength and will for beauty, even in suffering. I love you. And then he says, I'm going offline tomorrow for my sanity. Not if need be. 
I never did. Not if need be, I never did. And that haunts me still. And what I can tell you is my community, the hubris of a lifelong conservationist who thought that I could possibly save a species, a piece of land, and I couldn't even help my brother. I know that that's not a rational thing. I trust that Dan had his path. But I think the humility that one goes through when someone you love chooses death has teeth. And it's something you live with all of your life. The last thing he wrote to me was on June 7th, 2018. Tempest found me name. It's in our name, sis. The weather is changing. And now I'll read the last section. And this will take 20 minutes. The bouquet of sunflowers fell off the mantel onto the floor. I awoke to the sunflower petals strewn across the carpet. I picked them up one by one and placed them in a pouch with two grouse feathers from Brook and an owl feather that fell from the sky, snatched before it touched the ground. A gift from our son Louis. I took the red-tailed hawk feather resting on a bookshelf given to me by Dan. I arrived in Salt Lake City from Jackson, Wyoming in a daze. Hank would meet me at the mortuary at 8.30 a.m. On my way, I called my father. He was not doing well. Hank greets me at Sunset Lawn. We hold each other tight and then walk into the funeral home that we know too well. We sit in the lobby and say little. The funeral director welcomes us and tells us the cremation will begin at 9 o'clock and will take roughly six hours to completion. You are welcome to leave and come back when we call you to pick up the cremains. We will stay, Hank says. I look at him. He is resolute. We had not discussed this. We ask to see Dan's body. We tell the funeral director we would like to spend some private time with Dan. He tells us that would be difficult, as he is covered in plastic. We ask to have the plastic removed. There's a long pause. We say we want to touch his body before he enters the cremation, the crematorium. The funeral director says he will see what he can do. He returns and says it will take some time to remove the plastic. We say, we have time. The funeral director disappears. After 20 minutes, we are taken into the back of the mortuary where cremations occur. It is clear to us that this area is not meant for the public or for families. The door is open for us, and we see Dan's body draped in a white sheet. His shoulders are bare, and his hands are folded one over the other above the sheet. We stand on either side of Dan's body, his beautiful, long body, we are left alone with our brother. Dan's face is beautiful. I expect his eyes to open, his skin is translucent, and a deep peace has settled over his body. There is the slightest smile on his face, not forced or fixed by morticians. His body has been washed. That is all. We see him clean and pure. I pull out my pouch. Hank and I each take a grouse feather in place, one east and one west, beneath his hands, his beautiful hands that we could finally touch and hold, surprisingly feminine hands, in spite of a lifetime of digging, I hear him say, I have finally mastered dirt. Other phrases return to me, give me the sky, I've been buried too long, I have the rope tear, I'm done, I'll go out gently. He is done, we are undone. Into his resting hands we place feathers, the owl feather in his left hand, the red-tailed hawk feather in his right, the one bird of prey that yields. Hank and I, without words, intuitively place the sunflower petals on his heart laid bare, a pile of many petals to draw out the darkness from his troubled heart into light. Hank places one petal on his throat, 
where a wide red line circling around his neck reveals his choice. I place two yellow petals on his forehead, one vertical and one horizontal, making a sunflower cross. In that moment, I heard Dan's voice, as clear as day. Sunflowers tear. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? Do you remember? I paused, and then I burst out laughing. Yes, I got it. The sunflower clan I had forgotten. I had forgotten the beauty of a late summer walk we made together through a radiant field of sunflowers. The last time Dan was at our home, Brooke and Dan and I were on an afternoon stroll, Dan noting how all the sunflowers were facing the light. We made vows as self-appointed members of the sunflower clan to take care of one another and remind each other to follow the light in times of despair. Can I love myself enough to change, Dan asked, as we walked waist-high in the yellow-petaled field. Can I, sis? I saw Dan's choice as an act of self-love, a quick change of form from body to spirit. Could his suicide have been an act of courage carried out by his own hands, his beautiful hands, his desire finally for a quick transformation of his burdened soul after decades of suffering. Maybe that's why the first thought out of my mouth upon hearing he was dead was one of support. It returned to his body cold. There is no romance here, only the brutality of truth. My brothers are before me. Hank is alive. Dan is dead. Steve is dead. I am the eldest. Why was it not me? Hank and I stood on either side of Dan's body, now placed inside the blue cardboard box he would be burned in. We said our prayers to each other on Dan's behalf, and then, I'm honest, I felt Dan's impatience, eagerness. A man in a black suit from the mortuary entered and asked if we wanted more time. We said we were ready. The man thought we meant that we were ready to go. Hank told him no, that we would be staying through the entire process. Are you sure, he asked. Hank said yes. By his side, I was following Hank's lead reluctantly. And so the man in the black suit pulled the two doors open that revealed the cremation chamber. The chamber was computerized. He set the dials to heat the furnace. Hank and I watched the neon numbers rise from 400 degrees Fahrenheit to 1100 degrees. It was hot enough. He then pushed a button and the chamber door opened. Inside, we witnessed the flames, fueled by natural gas and sounding like rocket boosters. The man nodded that now was the time. Hank and I lifted the box holding our brother's body into the flames. The chamber door came down. The man in the black suit closed the two white doors and left the roar of the furnace audible. Hank and I sat on a love seat against the wall. It was covered in red fabric with gold dragonflies. Nothing else in the room was comforting. It was a room of discard and storage. Filing cabinets, vases, plastic flowers, cardboard boxes, urns decorated with flags or doves or sunsets, a small desk with a computer on it, a few stray chairs with overhead lights. Clearly, this was not a space intended for the contemplation of loved ones. I got up and turned the lights off. It suddenly became very dark. Hank, forever the right one, said, nice atmosphere, Tara. Another man in a black suit, an acquaintance from high school, came to check on us and asked if we might not be more comfortable sitting in the lobby. Hank and I said we were fine, that we would wait. It may take up to six hours, he said. We're cool, Hank said. I smiled. Is there anything you need? May we light a candle, I asked. His mouth moved sideways. Let me check. And then he left. Hank and I looked around the room. We spotted two candles on the shelves and remarked at how inspiring the art was. A print of a misshapen girl in a pinafore holding a disgruntled cat. Then there was the one with the garish sunrise whose bright orange rays appeared to be spiking through a forest of lime green trees. Our favorite, we concluded, was the tipped over milk can in a garden of dead gladiolas. <laughs> My friend from high school returned with his practice solemn demeanor and said, I'm sorry, Terry, 
no candles can be lit. I said, is against the fire code. <laughs> of course, I said, and then we all burst out laughing. Time passed, two hours, then three. Lindale about, a dear friend close to Dan, came to see us, and the three of us shared stories as we sat on the floor together. An astrologer, she read Dan's death chart for us. He was born on a lunar eclipse, and he went out on a lunar eclipse. One for the record books, she said, with all of Mars' energy behind it. On the night Hank and I went to the medical examiner's office to identify Dan's body, I recalled once again how we held each other's hands as the blood moon rose above the Wasatch Mountains with caged dogs howling behind us. He was a warrior, she said. I flashed back to seeing Dan's body for the first time after his death and thinking to myself how noble he looked. That was the word that came to me, noble. Hank and I could not believe this was our brother. Dan was dead. This was a fact. The disbelief began to evaporate as I stroked his forehead. In life, he looked like our father. In death, he resembled our mother. Hank and I sat down on the brocade couch in silence. Dan's peace helped us gather our composure, and we believed seeing Dan's body would help soothe our father's heart. We left the room, closed the door behind us, and found our father in one of the mortuary waiting rooms, having finished signing the last documents, including Dan's death certificate. We told him we thought it would be good for him to see Dan's body, that he looked peaceful, and it would make it real. He hesitantly agreed. We descended the steep steps with Hank and me on either side of him, and then we entered the dimly lit room. With our father between us, we put our arms around him as he faced Dan's still body. I can't see him, he said. Shattered, he mourned his son, another son he had now outlived, and then his eyes were finally able to focus through the tears. He looks like a noble warrior who could have belonged to any time, he said. His hair was combed back. Dan's long curls touched his shoulder. His beard was brown with gray streaks. He was thin, too thin. His high cheekbones accentuated his chiseled face. He looks like Diane, our father said. Everyone always said he looked like me. We sat on the couch across from Dan for some time, and then Dad stood up abruptly. As we left, he put his hand on Dan's shoulder. Thank you, Dan. The door opened, I jumped, startled. The man in the black suit entered again. You may want to leave now. I'm about to shift the bones. We are staying, Hank said. I made a vow to my brother. The man in the black suit then introduced himself. His name was Brian Robbie. We shook hands. He pulled the white doors open. The heat from the retort seared our faces. Mr. Robbie took off his jacket and folded it neatly and placed it on the back of a chair. He then put on a pair of long gray welding gloves, the same welding gloves my brother wore when he worked for the family business. We stood behind Mr. Robbie as the chamber door to the crematorium was drawn up. Dan's body was burning. Our brother's ribcage had become white paper prayer flags flapping inside the flames. His arms looked like wings, and in that moment, Dan was Icarus, kin to the eagles he loved and released in Utah's wilderness. And he was beautiful. We watched Mr. Robbie rake Dan's bones with the grace of a Zen master, in meditative motion like a dance with the dead. His body was being disassembled, spread across the floor of the gray brick chamber, Hank and I were mesmerized, witnessing the beauty Dan was becoming, how the process was vaporizing a human body from flesh to spirit. And then, after the final rearrangement of bones, Mr. Rabe stepped back with his rake, assessed the situation, and pushed the button once again as the door to the chamber closed. Mr. Rabe took off his gloves and placed his rake to the side. We walked back into the low-lit room as he shut the white doors. We thanked him and bowed. He nodded his head as we resumed our place on the love seat of dragonflies. Our friend who stood with us said she felt blessed to have witnessed what we had, as she had not been present at her father's cremation, unaware that it was even an option. She used the word healing, although I'm not sure what I heard, as the moment had transcended anything I could rationally comprehend. 
Pant and I sat in silence for another stretch of time. Another hour or two passed, and Mr. Rabe returned. This time, inviting us to watch him gather the bones before he ground them into ash. The doors opened, the chamber door rose, and Dan was gone. The chamber was empty. I was shocked by the void that only hours before had held his physical presence. Mr. Rabe put the welding gloves back on and began raking Dan's remains rhythmically into stainless steel trays. Hank and I watched as our brother's bones were swept into view, now recognizable as parts of the human anatomy. The ball of a broken femur, finger bones, ulna, radius, rib fragments, a shard here and there, a glimpse of skull, his jaw, his beautiful jaw, and many vertebrae, all being lovingly raked into the trays through the deliberateness and artistry of Mr. Rabe's care. With the larger fragments now gathered in two trays, he took out a fine brush and swept the dust and smaller particles of Dan into another smaller tray. With such tenderness, we stood in awe of the reverence and respect this stranger was showing our brother. This was a holy act, a ritual performed with great dignity, usually unseen and unacknowledged. We followed Mr. Rabe into a stark room, where he would separate the bones further before they would be ground into ash. He excused himself and left Hank and me alone with our brother's remains. Hank and I stood before trays of white bone fragments. What are you thinking, I asked. Probably the same thing you're thinking, Hank replied. Are they coyote, rabbit, or raven, he said, smiling. How many times have we come across similar piles of sun-bleached bones in the desert, I asked, all of our childhood. We wanted to touch them, but instead placed our hands just close enough to feel the heat emanating from them. The remaining energy of our brother's life was being transformed into the palms of our hands. There is no hierarchy in death. No hierarchy of lives. It is this hierarchy that allows them to be inferiorized, stigmatized, and brutalized while other lives are privileged. We are prisoners of an ideology that prevents us from seeing the world as it is. We are captives of a view of things that gives them a false appearance of self-evidence. Our task is to change the world. No. Our task is to change our view of the world. There is no hierarchy in death. There are only bones. Mr. Robbie returned. We simply watched him meticulously separate the bones with long, narrow tweezers. We looked for metal. He looked for metal and found some in Dan's teeth. With special pliers, he pulled out fillings and placed them in a box with other fillings from the dead to be recycled. With proceeds going, he told us to the local children's hospital. Bone fragments were then separated into what looked like pieces of coral. Smaller pieces resembled shells, white shells. Then Mr. Rabe took an even finer paintbrush and swept the last particles of Dan into what looked like a small ripple of sand found on the periphery of Pacific Coast beaches he had loved. He brushed the bone dust into a metal container, followed by the sorted bone fragments. He turned to us and quietly asked, if we were comfortable watching him grind the bones. It would take roughly 50 seconds, he said. We said yes. He turned on the switch like a morning blender, and we listened to the bass notes of our brother become the melody of Ash. And then, it was silent. Would you like to feel the last heat from your brother's life, Mr. Rabe asked. Hank and I held Dan in our hands for the final time. Dan's ashes would be placed into a simple black container that Hank would put in his backpack and carry into Utah's West Desert, where Dan banded and released golden eagles to their vast terrain of sky. Mr. Rabe took the container, opened it, and poured the warm ashes inside. We inhaled our brother. The box was closed, 
Mr. Rabe handed Dan's grenades to Hank. We thanked Mr. Rabe for the grace of his work and for taking care of our brother. We experienced it as a sacred right. It is my privilege and my calling, he said. I know that I am the last person to touch the body of an individual who was loved. I take that very seriously. He paused. Thank you for witnessing what I do. Mr. Robbie walked Hank and me out to the foyer of the mortuary. Everyone else had gone home. We shook hands again. One more thing, he said, before you go. It's been my experience that when you scatter Dan's ashes, there is usually a sign that lets you know when you have found the right place. The shape of a cloud, the call of a bird, some sign in nature. Hank told him that he planned on taking Dan's ashes into the Cedar Mountains, west of Salt Lake City. A beautiful, rugged place, Hank said. Mr. Robbie smiled. My family name is German. When translated into English, Rabe means raven. I want you both to know I felt your brother's essence, and I had a strong feeling we would have liked each other. We carried Dan's remains to our father's house. We walked inside and found John, as Hank calls him, sitting at his desk waiting for us. We sat down and told him this story. Dan's ashes weighed eight pounds, seven ounces, the same weight as when he was born. It is also the weight of a gallon of water one carries in the desert. Two days later, Hank put Dan's ashes into his backpack and headed toward the Cedar Mountain Wilderness Area, several mountain ranges west of Salt Lake City in Utah's Great Basin, south of Great Salt Lake. Hank hiked for four hours straight up a particular peak that both he and our father knew and that Dan inhabited during the winter months when his work entailed taking deer carcasses out to the West Desert to lure golden eagles down to the foothills for yearly population counts. Hank did, in fact, recognize a sign, a stone pinnacle in the shape of an eagle head, very near the summit. He knelt down on the pale, steep ground where a flat spot emerged next to a bare-boned tree sculpted by the wind in the shape of a cross. Hank released the white ashes of Dan's body to earth and sky, acknowledged by a circling hawk above that he could hear but not see, one body yielding to another. It can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. How do we go deeper? How do we find the space to not look away from all that is breaking our hearts? We are eroding and evolving together. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.